Well, how did this happen? How can mankind going, go from living with God in Eden, the perfect place, with provision and abundance, to be then chucked out of the garden with broken relationships between both each other and God himself? What has happened in this chapter that has led to such disastrous consequences? That has led to curses and brokenness, to sweat and toil and pain. How has the very good verdict of Genesis 1 and 2 turned into exile and banishment? You see, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks in Genesis, uh, these early chapters throw a lot of questions up for us. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Uh, What does it mean to be made male and female? How did God create something from nothing? What does dominion over creation look like for us today? And all of these are good questions. And maybe as Lindsay read that passage to us, we thought of even more questions. Uh, Why did God create a tree that could lead to the fall? How is there a talking snake? Who is the snake? Why is the snake there? Did God create evil? If he didn't, is he really in charge? And I want to say that all these questions, they're good questions and they're interesting questions. Um, But the Bible doesn't necessarily answer all of them with extreme clarity. And this passage tonight wasn't necessarily written to answer those questions. But I also want to suggest that if we understand tonight's passage, we're going to understand ourselves, the world we live in, why Jesus came, why we need to trust Jesus, and why we can have hope for the future. So let's dive in with our first point. How did the first sin happen? Looking at verses 1 to 5. And firstly, we're going to think about doubting God's word. Look down at verse 1 with me. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, in this verse, the snake who we know to be Satan, called by Jesus later as the father of lies, comes to Eve and starts to speak to her. And notice the serpent's tactic. Firstly, he sows the seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. Look at what he says. Did God really say? The serpent is saying, I can't believe that God would say this, that he'd make all these wonderful trees that look really great and then say you couldn't have any of them. Surely God didn't really say that, did he? It's like when a rumor goes around and someone comes up to you and says, did you really say that? Did you, did you really do that? And you have to start thinking, did I? I don't remember doing that. I don't remember saying those things. And this is the case with Eve. A snake exaggerates God's prohibition. The snake totally changes what God has said. His desire is to implant in Eve that impression that God isn't really what he says he is. That he's a bit mean that God's a bit overprotective, that God's a bit harsh. The snake wants Eve to think that God's rules aren't really there to protect them against sin, but are just there as an impossible thing to follow. And so this question alone has already put Eve on the back foot. Her job is now to defend God's honor, to correct what the snake says, and to put the snake in its place as an animal that mankind have dominion over. We'll look down at verse 2 with me as we start to think about distorting God's word. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the snake, 
we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Eve starts well in her response, doesn't she? She explains correctly that God said they could eat from the trees in the garden. We saw that back in chapter 2 and verse 16. But then Eve makes a fatal error in the next little bit. She overcorrects what the snake says. She goes a step too far when talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just look at verse 3 with me. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Is this what God said? Well, look with me at chapter 2 and verse 17 where it says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. See, God didn't actually say that they couldn't touch the fruit, just that they couldn't eat the fruit. Eve has already successfully distorted what God had actually said. She's been infected with the snake's lies, and those seeds of doubt are coming to fruition. The serpent's attempt to get Eve to see God as harsh and cruel are working. It might seem innocent enough, it might seem a little innocent mistake, but it's going to open the way for more distortion of God's words and more temptation to take place. And this is a good uh, point to kind of think about the seriousness of deviating from God's word, even by a small amount. We're going to see soon enough that one deviation paves the way for another, for more doubt, for more deviation, for more distortion of what God really said. You see, most churches and most people who don't believe the truth of the Bible and wander into heresy didn't start by denouncing core truths of the Bible. They started by letting go of a little bit of truth here, adding a bit of distortion there. Churches who want to be outsider-friendly start loosening their stances on things like sexuality and gender and marriage And before you know it, they're basically a community center that talks a lot about love, but not a lot about sin. That talks a lot about grace, but not a lot about judgment. That talks a lot about heaven, but not a lot about hell. You see, denying or changing God's word is a slow but definite process. One denial will lead to another. Well, let's jump back into text and let's think about the next bit, denying God's goodness. Denying God's goodness. And look down at verse four with me. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See here, the snake has got even bolder. It kind of reminds me of a child who survived the first attempt going head first down the slide. So this time thinks, well, why don't I do it with a running start? This is the serpent getting bolder. He's going on the attack again. This time, notice with me how the serpent doesn't question God's word. Rather, he completely and utterly denies it. You will not die, the snake says. Completely the opposite of what God said. You eat it, you will die. And notice the reason the snake gives for saying that they won't die if they eat the fruit. He says that the reason you won't die is because God only said that to kind of ward you off the tree. So you wouldn't eat the fruit and become like him. You wouldn't be able to make judgments on good and evil for yourself. You see, the serpent is painting an untrue picture of what God is like. 
And it kind of reminds me of someone um, who's really sporty, that sporty friend that we all have. You know, the one who's good at everything that they pick up. And you just hope that they don't start playing your sport, because you know as soon as they start playing your sport, they're going to beat you at it very, very quickly. And you like being the best. You like being the kind of king of the sport that you play. Maybe it's squash or tennis or more extreme sports like tiddlywinks. Whatever it is, you like being the top and you don't want other people to take that status. And that is exactly what the snake wants Eve to think. To think that God is just a selfish God. He kind of likes being set apart. He likes being king. He likes making the moral judgments. And really what he's scared of is you're going to become like him. You see, God wants all the wisdom and he wants all the judgments to be his alone. And he doesn't want anyone else to have anything to do with it. The snake denies God's goodness to Adam and Eve. And, and he wants Eve to do the same, to join him in denying God's goodness. Also, observe with me in the verse that the serpent claims insight into God's very thinking. Just look down with me. He says, for God knows. The snake is saying, look, listen to me. I know what God is really like. And it isn't a pretty picture. This God isn't a, a good guy, really. You can't really trust him. You can't really trust what God says. And the final thing to see from verse 5 is that the serpent not only says you won't die for your rebellion, he goes even further than that. He actually says that active rebellion will lead to blessing. That ignoring God, ignoring God's word, is going to lead to good things. Look down at it. It says God not only won't kill you, but actually it will make him like you. That you're going to be able to have moral judgment-making abilities. You can be the boss. Just take this fruit. You can be who you want to be. Trust me, the snake says. This will be worth it. And is that not what he's whispering to us right now in the 21st century? That sin is worth doing. Yes, Jesus died for you and you know, you're meant to live in obedience to him. But come on, this one is going to be good for you. Just open up your laptop. Look at that website. You know you'll enjoy it. Shout at your wife. You know you're right to be angry. Trust me, this sin is justified. Don't worry. No one will know that that money you said you were going to give to the church, you've actually spent on a new car or new clothes that you didn't need. Don't bother going to a small group or yak. You've got exams coming up. Work's really busy at the moment. Just leave the Bible study. Just leave meeting up with other Christians. That isn't important. Friends, these are the lies of the devil. And these are the root of the Genesis 3 rebellion. Sin is never worth it. Sin is never really enjoyable. And it's going to be always regrettable. You see, we need to take the negative example of Eve and be ready to fight the lies of Satan with the truth of God's word and his promises in Christ. We need, as we heard this morning, to be watchful and prayerful as we stand against the devil's lies. Well, hopefully we've seen that the run-up to the first sin started with doubting God's word, then distorting God's word, and then finally denying God's goodness. But now let's move on to verse six and see what the first sin was. So point two, what the first sin was. 
Look down at verse 6 with me. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Notice that the tree has three positive or praiseworthy characteristics. First thing notice, it's physically appearing, appealing. Sorry, The fruit was good for food. Secondly, it's aesthetically pleasing. Eve saw that it was pleasing to the eye. It looked really tasty. It looked really good. It looked desirable. Thirdly, notice it was intellectually desirable. The fruit promised wisdom. It promised greater freedom in discerning things for themselves. So the fruit looks like it had everything. Everything you could ever want, this fruit promised. Again, as Christians here and now, how much can we relate to this? Sin is always going to look desirable, but as we're going to see, it never delivers on its promises. So in one sense, we could say the first sin was maybe coveting something that they shouldn't have taken. But I want to suggest to us it was so much more than that. I want us to see that what was really going on was complete rebellion. It was going against God's good order for the creation he had made. And so to help us, we're just going to recap quickly what the order was that we saw. And hopefully it's going to come on the screen. So firstly, we saw that it was God was the creator and sustainer of all things. Hopefully we saw that in chapter 1 and 2. Then God makes mankind. But what is mankind's role? Well, flick back with me to chapter 1 and look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that, so this is the role that God gives, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God even repeats the same thing in verse 28 of the same chapter, directly telling Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it to take control of the earth and have dominion over it. So we can see that God was meant to be king with people underneath him. And we could draw it out even further and see that man is made first, then woman, completely equal but having different roles. The man servant-heartedly leading his wife in worship to God. And both of them together exercising dominion over the rest of creation under God's rule. But now notice with me in verses 1 to 5 what happens. Verse 1 to 5 of chapter 3, we get the complete opposite of God's good order for creation. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, first of all we have the snake, the animal, speaking to the woman. The created serpent that was meant to be ruled over is now speaking to the woman who is meant to be ruling over it. And then Eve is going to then speak to her husband. Look at verse 6. The woman then gives some of the forbidden fruit to her husband. See, the husband does not lead the couple in obeying God by banishing the snake from the garden. Rather, he lets the woman lead him into rebellion. Notice also that he's been with her the whole time. He hasn't just appeared on the scene in verse 6. Just look at that. He says, her husband who was with her. She hasn't tricked him into eating the fruit. She, he, she hasn't said, you know, this is just from one of those other trees. Take it. It's totally fine. No, he was there the whole time. He's seen exactly what's happened. He's probably heard the conversation. 
and he's allowed it to happen. The man and the woman have failed in their responsibility. They failed in the roles that God had given them. And finally, slightly jumping ahead, but just look down at verse 12 of chapter 3 with me. We see there that the man speaks back to God, attempting to shift the blame from himself for what happened onto God. You see, Genesis 3 shows us and shows us what sin is. It shows us sin what it really is, a rejection of God's good design for his world. It's about wanting to be king of our own lives, about wanting to do our own will, not God's will. To live our way and not live God's way. It's about thinking that God is some kind of cruel and oppressive God. Sin is ugly. It is dangerous. Friends, sin is going to sound tempting, but don't let it tempt you. It promises much, but delivers little. Well, let's move on to our third point, the consequences of the first sin. The consequences of the first sin. And we're going to see the first consequence is shame has now entered the world. Look down at verse 7 with me. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve have had their eyes opened. They are now the ones making moral judgments, and they've rebelled against God's good design for the world. See, God designed a world where nakedness wasn't shameful. Just at the end of chapter 2, we read, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Nakedness wasn't something to be afraid of or something that needed to be covered. Rather, it was something to be embraced, a symbol of vulnerability and innocence in God's sight. But now that just simply isn't true. Nakedness is shameful. Shame has entered into this perfect world. And this is a thing that runs throughout the Bible. In just a few chapters' time, we're going to read about Noah's sons finding Noah naked and how shameful that was and how it actually leads to curses. Nakedness and shame are now going to go hand in hand. Innocence in the garden has been lost. Adam and Eve, look at it, need to cover their nakedness, a way to mask what they've done, a way to mask the shame that they both now feel. But like all our attempts to cover our sin, It's never going to really work. Shame is now sadly part and parcel of the world we all live in. Well, secondly, fear is the next consequence of the first sin. Glance down at verse 8 with me. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Firstly, notice here that the people were dwelling with God in his presence. He walks in the garden, a symbol of their close and intimate relationship. But look what's happened now. The man and the woman, they hear God in the garden, And now they're trembling in fear. They have to hide away. They hide from God as if trees could cover their sin, as if trees could cover what they had done. God asked the man in verse 9 where he is, and the man's reply is telling. Just look at it with me in verse 10. 
He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Again, the nakedness, once a mark of the open, unashamed uh, nature that characterized life in the garden, has been marred by shame that has led to fear of that nakedness being exposed. The man and the woman now fear God in a way that they never did before they sinned. They're now so preoccupied with the sin that they've committed and covering it up that they actually can't have a relationship with God. They try to run away and hide from God, afraid of him. You see, the man and the woman can no longer enjoy God's loving presence. Rather, they stand in fear of his judgment. I always think that this chapter is such a sad chapter, but also how it encapsulates so well the nature of people. How often, even as Christians, do we try to hide from God when we sin? How often do we try to ignore that feeling we have when we've messed up? How often do we try and cover our sin with good works, thinking that we'll just do a bit of extra stuff here at church or do some other good things, just try and scrub ourselves up, then God will forgive me? We seem to forget very quickly that he's the all-loving God, the one who sent his only son to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so we could know him personally. We can't cover up, we can't hide our sin. We need to beg God for mercy. And it reminded me of a a line from an old hymn where it says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Adam and Eve are experiencing fear and shame. But sadly, it doesn't end there. Blame is the third consequence of that first sin. Look at verse 11 with me. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, Adam is asked by God what happened. And Adam here is going to be faced with a choice. Will he do what we just talked about and admit his failings? Is he going to come to God for mercy and for grace and forgiveness? Well, no. Look at his immediate reaction. It's to blame others. Firstly, in verse 12, Adam blames both the woman and God. The woman you, God, put here with me. She took the fruit. She gave it to me. I mean, I didn't really do anything. All I did was take a bite of this fruit. I mean, I was fine before you put her with me. To be honest with you, God, it's not really my fault at all. It's yours and the woman's fault. You see, the sin is out there in Adam's eyes, not in his own heart, but it's out there. It's to do with the other two, not with me. Okay, maybe that wasn't the reaction that we hoped for from Adam, but what about the woman? Does she do any better? Well, look down at it with me. No, she doesn't. She says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The man and the woman point the finger at everyone but themselves. They're both trying to justify their actions, both really revealing how much they've fallen from what God designed them for. 
Again, I want to ask, can we see this in ourselves? Are we quick to blame others? Are we quick to blame the culture and the world for our sin? Do we need to remember that our sin comes from within us, from our hearts? And are we ready to admit our failings and say, God, please forgive me. God, I've done it again. That sin I struggle with, I've done it again. Lord, please have mercy. You see, this is the origin of the finger-pointing responsibility avoiding culture we see today this is where it started it wasn't my fault it was their fault it was about them they caused me to sin notice that the man and the woman blame each other their relationship breakdown is a symptom of the fall as well as their relationship breakdown with God Adam blames his wife he's very quick to throw her under the bus isn't he relationship breakdown is now going to be commonplace Well, fourthly, we're going to see that judgment is also a consequence of that first sin. Now, in this next few verses, there's a lot of details in here, and there's lots of things that we could pick out. So I just want us to notice a few details. Firstly, this is the start of the battle between the people, um, Eve's offspring, and Satan and his dark forces, who want people to turn away from God. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There is now enmity between them. There's gonna be a battle between the Satan's offspring and Eve's offspring. Secondly, notice that though one day the serpent will be crushed, and that's something we're gonna come back to later, okay? So the serpent is gonna be crushed. There is gonna be some hope. Thirdly, notice how from now on, Fulfilling God's creation purposes is going to be really, really difficult. Look at verse 16. We see that childbearing, filling the earth as God told them to do, is now a painful process. As well as the desire of the woman is now going to be for her husband. The dynamic of their relationships completely changed. There's going to now be a power struggle. Instead of the perfect, harmonious marriage we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, there's now going to be a battle between them. Look at verse 17 with me. The ground is now cursed. So working the ground, again, something else that God commanded, is going to be a struggle. It's going to be a toil. It's not going to be a joy like it was in the garden. Sweat and hard work are now the order of the day. Fulfilling God's purposes, fulfilling God's plans is going to be hard and painful. You see, judgment has been pronounced on the people and on the earth. Well, finally, notice with me that death is going to be the final consequence of this sin. Look at verse 19 with me. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. To dust you will return. Everlasting life with God is now no longer a possibility here. Adam and Eve and their descendants are going to toil on the earth until inevitably they die. Their lives come to an end. The world that was created without death has now been marred by sin and death has entered it. Death is now a consequence that everyone in this world has to face. People can't live forever. Everybody is going to die. 
And that brings us to our conclusion. Let me just read to us verse 20, from verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove out the man, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Mankind has been thrown out of the perfect garden. No longer in a perfect relationship with God, no longer in a perfect relationship with each other. The ground is cursed, childbearing is painful, Satan is the enemy of the people, death now reigns, and the tree of life has been shut off. So what is our hope then? Is it all doom and gloom, or is there hope for us, even in this passage? How are we ever going to get back to Eden? How are we ever going to get back to that perfect creation that God made? Well, again, glance down with me at verse 15. And notice that God promises that an offspring of Adam and Eve will crush the head of the snake, defeating him forever. And it's in light of that that then we read this great passage in Hebrews chapter 2. Let me just read a couple of verses to you. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, he shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is Satan, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. You see, Jesus is the answer to our cries. It's in Jesus we find our only hope. Jesus, sent by God, God's very own son, takes on flesh, takes on humanity. He dies the death that we deserve, the one we know we deserve when we read Genesis 3. But you see, in his death and resurrection, he defeats Satan, he defeats sin, he defeats death. Verse 17 of Hebrews 2 tells us that he makes atonement for our sins. Through Jesus, we can have the right relationship we lost in the garden. Through Jesus, we don't have to fear death because he's defeated its power over us. Through Jesus, Satan has been crushed and life eternal can be ours again. Because Jesus did God's will in the garden as we saw this morning where Adam failed to do, his obedience can be ours. Friends, we live in a fallen and destitute world. But I want to ask, do you have this hope today? Do you know this amazing grace that through Jesus we can look forward to the day when we experience Eden restored, the new creation? Sinners like us can be made perfect like him. 
If you don't know this Jesus, then why not come to him today? Why not come and speak to one of the prayer team who will be at the front at the end of the service? Or come to chat to me, I'll be at the back. Come to know this grace for yourself. This great and merciful high priest for yourself. And I want to finish by reading again that line from that hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray together.